Welcome back, my friends, to the Mark Claire Show. It's another Monday, another Monday with me, your host, Mark Claire, where I do my darndest to guide you, to be your host, your guide, your shining beacon of light, perhaps you might say, on this journey called life, this journey through our reality. And uh, personally, I prefer to be as awake as possible when I'm about to dive deep on a subject like I am today with my guest, Rachel Wilson, discussing the occult origins of feminism. Great way to be wide awake is to dive into some Fox and Sons coffee. I don't have it in front of me today, I'll be honest. It's actually late in the afternoon, so I can't have coffee this late or I will have problems. I won't sleep tonight. Nobody needs that. Uh, But I did have it this morning and I'm still feeling refreshed from it because it's awesome. Fox and Sons coffee. Stephen Fox is a great guy. I've been a fan of mine for a few years now and it's just great to see him growing this business, not just for himself, but to teach his sons entrepreneurship as well. So I just think it's an awesome, awesome idea that he has, but Heck, to be honest with you, what I really love is the coffee. It's incredible. Check it out. You get a discount by using a code from your old friend, Mark Claire. Discount code MCS. Go to Fox and Sons, F-O-X, the letter N, S-O-N-S dot com. Grab yourself a bag. You're not going to regret it. And use that discount code MCS at checkout. With that being said, it is time now to dive into my interview with Rachel Wilson. Welcome back. My guest today, she is the author of the book, Occult Feminism, The Secret History of Women's Liberation. I'm very pleased to welcome Rachel Wilson. Rachel, welcome to my show. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super happy to be here. All right. Well, before we get into your book, which is it's quite a topic to tackle uh, on your own, but I want to get to know you just a little bit better. So if you could just guide me through a little bit, some of your story of um, perhaps how you came to your own religious belief. um, And if you had any sort of, I don't know, encounters with the occult, interest in the occult, um, basically what led you eventually to getting to the place where you want to write this book? Right. Well, it's probably a slightly atypical story compared to, um, you know, a lot of the people in our circle who who I also know and some of the great guests you've already had on who have really cool stories where they, you know, were involved in the occult or the new age or different things and had like this winding journey. Mine's a little more boring <laughs> than that. Um, I was born and raised Protestant Christian. That's what I was until two years ago. Um, I was kind of in the middle of writing my book when, uh, you know, the whole world shut down and the, the craziness began about almost three years ago now. Holy cow. It's been three years. Can't it feels believe like that. a lifetime to me. I mean, you can, you can it's look so, at it either way. It's so bizarre. It feels like we're in a weird time warp, but, um, when churches all shut down, I didn't know exactly, you know, what's the proper way to worship God and what do I do now? And, uh, started looking for things online to watch or maybe do in place of church. And um, I'd always had some issues with like Protestant theology that I thought, well, maybe I just don't really understand or, or maybe it's not supposed to make sense to me. And um, somebody, I don't even remember who it was, but some like friend online just sent me like a Jay Dyer video. It was one of his debates against a Protestant. And I remember sitting there, I'm like doing my nails, like a true girl, and listening to it in my earbuds and every so often, you know, Jay makes a point and I go, well, shit. <laughs> and my husband's in the other room. And he's like, what's going on in there? What are, like, what are you doing? And I'm like, 
I'm just watching all of my like presuppositions about <laughs> Protestantism just like dissolve in front of my face while Pre-sup I do my nails. disintegration ignites. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, clearly I got to look into this some more, you know, and started doing lots of reading on early church history, which I love history. Anyway, my book I think is kind of a history book. Um, and so I kind of went down that whole early church rabbit hole and all of the things that didn't make sense about Protestantism suddenly made sense through like an Orthodox Christian lens. And I just felt like, well, um, first of all, I felt like a lot of church history had been kind of purposefully obscured um, because when I was growing up, it was like, you never heard anything prior to 500 years ago, the Catholic church was really corrupt and really terrible and we fixed it. Right. And that's about all I heard growing up. So really actually reading early church history and the canonization of scripture and, um, you know, what the early church fathers thought about who Christ was and what he did and what Christianity was, was super eye-opening to me. And it's been like the best, one of the greatest blessings ever for me, honestly, um, being in the church now and um, orthodoxy, giving a coherent worldview that makes makes everything make sense has been great. But as far as my book, I started writing my book because I wanted to present an argument, kind of an argument I had been giving in a lot of debates and arguments I'd been having with feminists for years, including my own mom, who's a pretty <laughs> radical left Marxist feminist and kind of kind of tried to raise me that way. I had like a very typical like boomer neocon dad and then like a very typical Ruth Bader Ginsburg fan. This must be some know. exciting Thanksgiving, some Thanksgiving dinners. Well, to no one's surprise, they divorced when I was nine. Who could have seen it coming? Um, <laughs> but I kind of grew up with the right-left dialectic. And, um, you know, listening to each one give their angry rants, you know, throughout my life about why the other side was bad. And um, when I had my own kids, I started having my children kind of young at about 20. And because I was always smart and in like a you know, smarty pants kids classes or like the, uh, you know, we're going to put you in the higher grades for certain things because you're testing out of other stuff. Everybody, it was like always expected that I had to go to college and start a career. Hmm. Like, obviously, right. It was just like this. It How could you waste things. that, that talent without right. slaving away for a giant corporation? I mean, come on. Exactly. <laughs> that was exactly what it was. And I was a person who didn't love school because I figured out really soon that school was not where you go to learn things or learn how to learn things. School is where you go to see how well you can follow rules and conform to expectations and things like that. So like to me, I almost felt like I got punished the smarter I was or the more that I knew or the more I would question things. I felt like that was actually discouraged and just trying to cram me into a mold was really what was going on. So I, I didn't want to go to college. I couldn't fathom another four years of school after I, you know, finished high school. It was like this huge relief, like, Oh God, I'm done. I'm finally out, you know? Um, so was there a bit of a, like a reactionary element to it for you between kind of maybe your mom pushing this stuff a lot. And then, uh, as you excelled in school, uh, kind of just being further pushed into that mold of here's the path you're supposed to be on successful career woman. Why aren't, why aren't you doing this? Did that create sort of a, a sort of a reaction from you that, okay, well, if you're going to push this on me, then maybe I'm just going to go in a totally different direction. Actually, it was more like, um, 
I was a, also a tomboy. So I never, I never totally fit. I was always this weird combination of things. Cause I have like a really girly side. And then I have like this, I love metal and weightlifting and hunting and shooting guns. I'm a firearms instructor and I loved hanging out with boys and playing in mud more yeah, than I typical. like. <laughs> yeah. More than I liked Barbies or roughly dresses. And I like, um, you know, I always liked philosophy and science and things like that in school. So I, but I also was an art student and won all these awards for like fine arts and writing and stuff. So I was always like a weird mix of things that, I had friends from every group, you know, I didn't like fit into one click in school either. And it was more just me kind of going like, okay, well, I'm just going to carve my own path like I always do and kind of had like a surprise pregnancy, although it shouldn't have been a surprise. I was doing the same thing all of because us Because biology? <laughs> right. Well, I was doing what we all do in the modern age, which is like, oh, I don't want to live with my parents. And I have a boyfriend and he seems really solid and we get along mm -hmm. great and we could combine our bills and it'll be really practical and we'll just live together. And we'll eventually, house. Yeah. eventually we'll get married, but you know, it's just a piece of paper. And, you know, I had that mentality at that age mm -hmm. where I was just kind of like, eh, you know, I'm familiar with that mentality myself. Yeah. Yeah. And my parents got divorced. And so I was like, yeah, I don't know about marriage anyway. I was just not thinking super hard about that. And, um, but, but did get pregnant. And I thought, well, it's sooner than I planned, but you know, this is what we were going to do anyway at some point. Right. So I thought it was a great thing and, uh, had my first daughter. And I remember like only getting a couple weeks off of work before I had to go right back to my, you know, rando job that wasn't anything particularly special and driving her to daycare thinking, wait a minute, I'm going to drive her to a daycare, drop her off, pay another woman to do all day long what I would rather be doing so that I can go to this job I don't care about and right. pretend. Take that money, give it to this other person, and now you don't yeah. you're not really spending a day with your daughter. And I just thought, this is the stupidest system. Who came up with this system? It's just so, it makes no sense. It seems super inefficient. It seems really stupid. And I didn't want to leave my daughter for 10 hours a day. And everyone around me, every woman around me was going, you'll get used to it. You'll get used to it. The baby will get used to it. The baby will get used to it. And I was like, why are we trying to force ourselves to get used to something that seems so pointless and stupid? And it's almost like early conditioning for this idea that I certainly had, uh, you know, in my teens and 20s that like, all right, we're just waiting, just waiting to move yeah. out. Just get away from our parents as far as possible. Um, I remember specifically, I even went to a college in a different state that cost more money like an idiot just because I wanted to be further from my family. I don't even know why I liked my family, but I was there's a conditioning there that maybe yeah. that starts with this thing of, you know, pushing, um, you know, um, daycare and stuff like that, because it's just they're pushing this from the beginning, being away from your family. It's the normal thing to do. Yeah, everybody should be atomized, right? Like in the modern life, the way the family works is we all get up in the morning, dad goes to his work in his building, mom goes, drops the kids off at daycare or like the whatever the beginning before school program is. And then she goes to work in her building. And then the kids all go to their building and go to their school during the day. And then at the end of the day, the kids go back to a daycare until their parents can come pick them up. And then finally, we're all together for maybe an hour at night, if we're lucky, if we don't have all these extracurriculars and sports and clubs and all kinds of other things we're doing, you maybe spend like an hour or two together as a family and the rest of the day, you're all completely separated doing your own thing. And I didn't question that stuff. There was no reason to question it until I had my own kids. And I just thought, 
I hate this. I think it's stupid. I don't understand why this is the way everyone, it, it felt like we were all pretending, you know, kind of like during certain um, medical recommendations and guidelines of the last few years where everybody kind of knew it was baloney, but we all pretended like, yeah, yeah all right, I'm, I'll stand I'm six feet apart, uh, you know, all right, I'll yeah. drop my kid at daycare. You know. <laughs> yeah, it was, it felt to me like we're all pretending that this is great. Like this is of course the way that things should be. And everybody around, I was like, really? And everyone around me was like, yes, this is what we do now. You'll get used to it. And I was just like, I don't, I don't think I like this. So that was kind of the beginning of me questioning things and then confronting all of the other non-coherent things that were going on in my life. Like, okay, why am I having a baby with a guy who doesn't want to get married? Uh, what do I do now that I have a baby with a guy who's still kind of like, eh, I don't know if I want to get married, eh, but you'll have a child with me, you know, just like all of the things that I didn't question that kind of my parents and everyone around me kind of said, yeah, this is fine. This is totally acceptable. You can do this. And I was like, what? <laughs> just none of it made sense. And I felt again, as usual, kind of like a fish swimming against the current saying, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't like it. Um, so didn't work out for me with the first guy, which was heartbreaking because I did not want to end up with divorced parent, you know, my daughter having divorced parents. I thought that that was like, for me, that was devastating. Again, everyone around me acted like, yeah, this is just what happens. You'll get over it. She'll get over it. Everyone just gets over it. <laughs> everyone gets divorced is what we do now. It's yeah. A, it's, it's just a modern what, age. It, Come on. Yeah, it's just how things go and you'll find someone else. And I was like, that's her dad. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't want, you know, I just, I really didn't want to repeat the cycle, but here I found myself repeating the cycle. So um, a little bit more time goes on. I meet another guy who's fantastic. I don't want to repeat the same mistakes. And I had to really think about how do I make a family work if that's what I want in this modern age and why doesn't it work? And why do men and women have such a hard time uh, you know, coming together and we say we want the same things. We all say we want to get married and have families, but it's working for almost nobody. And like, why is that? And why is there so much animosity? And why is there so much divorce? And why are we doing things the way we are? So like, just over time, I started to develop arguments against these things in order to defend my own choices in life, really. So like mm. when I decided, okay, I'm going to get married this time. I'm going to do things the way I think I should. And I'm going to stay home. And, you know, my husband now, he was like, yeah, you should stay home with the kids. We're going to have our own. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of them. We've got five now. <laughs> so awesome. um, that's great. first of all, people think that's insane. If I say I had five kids, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Um, but if you said you had five abortions, they'd say, oh, wow. Congratulations. Hey, independent woman. You know, right. I'm I'm in charge of my own body and bodily autonomy and, you know, being a boss and all that stuff. Right. So, yeah. But me having five kids, it was like most people around me thought that was a mistake. Uh, why, you know, like all the jokes of like, have you figured out what's causing it yet? <laughs> and, you know, just, um, it was just like a very anti-natalist attitude. And I'm super happy. I'm like, I love having a house full of kids and I love being a mom and I love, you know, being at home with them. 
and other people going, well, but what's going to happen? It, it was like all this fear mongering all of a sudden, even from our own family and our own friends of people like pulling me aside and going, Rachel, you really need to think about this because, you know, what if your husband leaves you for someone or what if it doesn't work out and you get a divorce, then what are you going to do? You'll be so vulnerable and this could happen and that could happen. And I thought, you know, if I was going to What a to horrible college, way to live. I mean, just in general. I mean, just with what's always the worst thing that can go wrong. So don't do anything in case that worst possible thing happens. That's just a right. horrible mindset. Plan for everything to fail, mm-hmm. right? Plan for, for your whole life to fail. But, you know, still go through with the plan, but plan for it to fail. Like, what? Yeah. Um, and go I through thought, the motions, but just be ready for it to all fall apart tomorrow. <laughs> well, and I thought it's so stupid that um, if I was saying, hey, I'm going to go to Harvard and get 120000 in debt to get a master's in philosophy or, or psychology, which is a completely oversaturated um, field to go into right now. Nobody would say, wait a minute, Rachel, think about this. Do you, can you afford a $700 a month, you know, payment forever? Are you going to make enough money to justify all the debt you're going into? What if that career field uh, doesn't work out for you? What if you decide you don't like it? What if you can't find a good enough job? What if you have to move to find it? Nobody fear mongered me about careerism or college and what could go wrong there. They were only interested in fear-mongering me to death about having a family. So once again, I was just like, this doesn't make sense. So it's one of those things where when it doesn't make sense, yet everyone's repeating it to you, it's a pretty good clue that it's probably propaganda. Which again, sounds very familiar to the last couple of years. It does. So um, it was mainly like me constantly having to defend and justify my life choices and my beliefs to people around me. And then that spilling over into like getting into arguments or doing debates. I would do like little debates online and my husband started doing debates. And then he was like, you're really good at this. We got (laughs) to we got to get you debating some feminists. And I did a couple of small debates like several years ago that went pretty well for me. And I would get tons of messages and questions. And I was I was asking my husband, I was like, well, the kids are getting older now. I do have a little more time like. What should I should I do something with this? I don't know. And he he was really supportive because he was like, yeah, you have a unique ability to not let people um, shame you into silence. Mm-hmm. And most women, I think, in particular, we we don't want to stand out. We don't want to go against the crowd. And I think there's like biological survival reasons for that. Um But he was like, you're kind of unique in that you can defend it and that you're not scared to defend it. And that if people like shame you or call you names or say awful things to you, you're going to blow it off and it's not going to going to bother you. And he's like, nobody else is saying this stuff. So maybe you should maybe you should do something with it. And I spoke to another friend of mine um, who is an author. His name's Aaron Clary. I don't know if any of your audience might know who he is, but he's kind of popular in the manosphere a little bit. And he was actually like really encouraging too. And he said, do a book or do, you know, do a show, do a book, do something because you should. And I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. So I started the book thinking I was going to make a lot of really great logical arguments about the funding behind feminism, the statistics that we have now after a hundred years of it and how it hasn't worked out, which I did. That's in the book. But what I kept coming up with over and over in the research, whenever I would read feminists, like early feminist writers from the 17, 18, 1900s, I was like, they're all in the occult. 
why have I never heard this? Why didn't I know this? Why, why, when we're talking about like the 19th amendment, do we not know that Susan B. Anthony and like Elizabeth Cady Stanton are very deeply involved in some really funny business and in the occult. And I, this became like a fascinating storyline that I kept finding over and over. And I was like, well, I have to, I have to write about this because all of these women came to feminism through a rejection of Christianity and an embrace of like occult beliefs. And some of them might, I might've identified as Christian adjacent or something at the time, but it was like Gnostic Christianity or it was like Christian scientism, or it was, you know, some other variation that had some occult ties to it or things like that. So. Can we just take a minute to just maybe, cause I, I, I've done this a lot. And in, in the first few episodes of the show too, I kind of tossed the word occult around. Um, yeah. but, but maybe we can hone in on that and what that really means. Cause I, I, I probably use it without really defining it. And some people might not yeah. really know exactly what occult means. They might just think occult spooky stuff or what have you. <laughs> right. In the book, I actually start with that too, be, for that reason. Um, occult really just means hidden. Like the word itself just means there's like some hidden knowledge that if you are an occult practitioner, there's some kind of hidden knowledge that you stand to gain from practicing whatever that esoteric or occultic uh, system is. So it really there, just there's knowledge we're not being told that can be sought, can be acquired through X, Y, Z weird means. Right. <laughs> right. So um, for me writing the book, it was more like uh, as I saw the story coming together and I'm reading the lives of all these different women throughout different ages, like di totally different times in history who had feminist beliefs, the ones that we all kind of have heard of maybe throughout history, uh, defending feminism or being some of the first to defend fem feminism really all agreed on one thing, which was that you have to get rid of this Christian patriarchy stuff, right? You have to get rid of this Christian idea that the man is like the head of the household or that the man is there and he has a certain role and then the woman is there and she has a certain role. That had to be rejected across the board. And when you do that, what ends up happening is all the other systems that you can believe in or you can embrace have an element of goddess worship to them, right? A divine feminine element. And strangely, it ends up becoming the dominant element and it becomes a lot about worshiping like female sexuality and things like that. So the book kind of took a turn away from what I thought it would be, but you just, you do the research and you follow where the story goes without like trying to grind your ax too hard, if that makes sense. So did, did you start off thinking like, this will be more like a maybe like a political history. We'll look at the laws and the, the foundations. And then as you dig deeper and deeper, you realize this is, this is more of a, a spiritual thing than necessarily a, a material political thing. Yeah, that's exactly what it turned out to be. Um, Susanna Budapest, who she's still around today, I think. Um, she's probably the person who brought modern witchcraft to America. She came from the Czech Republic uh, out of the Cold War era, came here in the 60s and 70s. And she was the first person to get witchcraft laws overturned in California. And she was on Facebook, even I think she's like in her 80s now. She's she's an older lady now. And she was on like Facebook and Instagram doing the uh, witch hexes against Donald Trump. Yeah, the last two elections. So I, I was reading about her background and how she established one of the first witch covens here in the United States that was legal because she used um, freedom of religion laws to get 
witchcraft, anti-witchcraft laws overturned. And she established the first legal witch coven in the United States in like the late 60s. And she called it the Elizabeth Cady, no, it was not Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She named another one after that. The first one was the Susan B. Anthony coven. So for her, she said she named her coven after Susan B. Anthony because feminism is simply the political arm of goddess worship, religion, and witchcraft. And I thought, well, who am I not to believe her? Because (laughs) she's a witch, right? And she's a political activist and she's a feminist. So, um, and what I found over and over and over is in these women's own words and in their own writings was that, yes, we think that witchcraft and feminism and all of these things go together. It's all political beliefs are essentially spiritual beliefs, really. When you find out what the underlying worldviews are and what the underlying beliefs are, the politics is is one aspect of like the broader religious or spiritual understanding that people have. So really, when you think about it, it shouldn't be too surprising that people who are going to be like the really prominent feminist activists are going to be really drawn to things like witchcraft or goddess worship or other elements of the occult where there's this divine feminine that punishes or overpowers, you know, masculine deities and things like that. So, or depending on the deity, it literally consumes um, males in, in certain, in certain cases that you, that you highlight in the book. Um, I want to hone in a little bit on just the concept of, of, of modern feminism, because I think to a lot of people that aren't immersed in the politics, immersed in, in this kind of conversation, you know, to them, it's just as simple as, all right, back in the day, women weren't allowed to do anything. At least this is the narrative. They weren't allowed right. to leave the house. They weren't allowed to get a job. They weren't allowed to do this, do that. They were miserable. They were slaves to their husbands. And now in our modern age, um, for whatever reasons, we have progressed to the point where now women can do everything men can, and they can... Buy property, go have careers, go vote, um, all of this stuff. What's wrong with that? Uh, from from someone's perspective that might just, you know, I don't know who's going to catch the show on the fly, on the radio or whatever, but but from, from yeah. someone's perspective in passing who only sees feminism as this sort of positive force for, for women's empowerment, what's the other angle of that? What are they missing potentially that where they, they just see it as as something that is, is gives them more options in life? Right. So like that's. That's another reason why I wanted to write the book was to get people to question that because the we are in a position now where the default view of the world is feminist and people don't know that. It's just like a fish swimming in water doesn't know it's swimming in water. It doesn't think about what it's swimming in, right? And we, you and I, anybody who's like 70 or younger has grown up in a feminist ethos, whether they realize it or not. So we're just kind of told this basic storyline of one day for whatever reason, you know, about a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, somewhere in there, women just looked around and they said, wow, we're so oppressed. Everything is terrible. My life is awful. It's torture. Uh, I have no freedom. Got all these kids. Yeah. And just shackled to the stove and forced to give birth repeatedly until I die from hearth death or in labor. And I've just had enough. And they all just gathered together and they rose up and this grassroots revolution happened. Well, the first thing is almost any revolution in history that you study, you will find out that practically none of them are actually Mm. grassroots, right? There's always some some, uh, force behind it that isn't 
the grassroots thing. And that's pretty true of every revolution that I've studied, but it's certainly true with feminism. So when the big push for women's suffrage began right around Civil War time, I would say is when it really started to heat up because it was very related to um, the anti-slavery movements and things like that. They kind of... um, they kind of went hand in hand a little bit. So it started then. And by the time you got to like the Victorian era, the turn of the century, <clears throat> it was in the papers. It was like, a, it was a big thing in the news at that point, this women's liberation stuff, this women's suffrage stuff. Right. And surprisingly at that time, if you go back and look, the anti-suffrage women's groups far outnumbered the pro-suffrage women's groups. And from the best data I could find on, you know, polls that they had done or um, places in different states where they had given women the opportunity to vote on if they even wanted suffrage, only somewhere between like four to 7% of women wanted the vote. And I'm like, Again, this seems like a really important thing that they never mention. <laughs> that the vast majority of women didn't want it. And I even found a cool um, like poster from one of the women's anti-suffrage groups from Kansas, and I think it was like 1904, um, where they listed out like 12 reasons, and it is in the book. I have a print of it in the book. 12 reasons why they didn't want the vote. And it actually was stuff that I agree with, things that make a lot of sense to me, like we don't want to have to do jury duty. And we don't want to have to hear all the grisly details of murders and rapes and horrible things. Um, let's let the men handle handle that sort of thing because we're very emotional and we're going to be easily swayed by emotional arguments if we're on a jury. So maybe maybe we don't want to do that. That was their um, own arguments, not not. Other yeah, that was their <laughs> argument was we don't want to do jury duty and hear about these awful things. The other thing was um, back then, much like now, politics was kind of considered like a dirty dirty uh thing to be involved in it was kind of shameful in a way you know it was kind of like ugh, politics you uh, know we should, bring, and we lot- should bring that back <laughs> <laughs> we should i know and back then it was kind of considered like you know politics is rough and it's kind of rude and it's kind of impolite and um they were like it's not women don't want that you know we don't want to be down in the mud doing dirty politics like we're kind of we would like to remain above it in a way So that was another argument they had. And then it was, we don't want to be at odds with our husbands. We don't want our homes divided. Like we, we need our husbands. We want our husbands. We don't have animosity towards them. So we don't want to be put in a position where um, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Man, that that one hits home so much today. I mean, they rightfully foresaw that this was going to cause problems, right? That that men and women do look at things differently. Women tend to be very safety oriented. Men tend to be more like, you know, freedom oriented. Uh, we tend to be more like, be nice and protect people. And men tend to be more like, um, think about the the practical aspects of mm-hmm. life and how things work. And those, rather those than inclinations tend feel. to, um, you know, tend to operate better in circum- certain circumstances. So yeah. you know, that motherly attitude is going to do great for raising a child and caring for a child, et cetera. Um, maybe the dad shouldn't be home, you know, bringing the kid on, on a roller coaster, you know, when he's six months old, which might be the inclination. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it was things like that where, you know, 100, 100, 125 years ago, women were fine with these differences. We had not yet been brainwashed that these things were shameful or made us weak or made us less than men to feel this way. And um, 
so they, the women themselves didn't want it. And another confirmation of that is when I would read like Margaret Fuller or, uh, you know, Matilda Joslyn Gage, these are like 19th century feminists who were writing a lot of academic stuff about feminist theory. Um, even Simone de Beauvoir in the, you know, middle 20th century, they all had the same frustration, which was women aren't interested in my feminist political theory. They just seem to want to like exchange recipes and sit in sewing circles and go to parties and, um, you know, talk about fashion or things like that. And they were constantly frustrated that women just didn't seem that interested in their boring political feminist theory. So I'm like, yeah, it seems that then, back then, just like now, most women aren't like, oh, let me just let me just be a political activist and let me sit around and talk about feminist theory all day. They they're like, no, we have the business of our homes, our families, our children. Women were the caretakers for the elderly, for the sick, for the young, and for people out there who are concerned about things like unchecked immigration. We are in a position right now where we have a very low birth rate that's been below replacement for a long time. Women are being pushed into career fields. Women are, uh, I think we're almost outpacing men in the workforce now since COVID happened. It's, uh, and so if you go to like a nursing home or uh, like a preschool, most of the workers there are going to be like not native English speakers, probably recent immigrants, probably unskilled low-wage workers, and they are the people who are entrusted with the care of our most vulnerable family members and people in our community. I don't know if that was a great move. I don't know if it was a great move to tell the women, hey, you know, you shouldn't take care of your your two-year-old or your sick grandfather or your disabled brother um, let some uh, person from Haiti who just got here yesterday do it for $10 an hour. I, d I don't, not to even denigrate those people, it's just that why would you tell women that the people they care about and love the most shouldn't be the priority in their life? No, no, what should be the priority in your life is going to work for a corporation so that we can double the tax base, mm -hmm. so that we can remove uh, you know, the protectors and defenders of children from the home because the mom's not there. And now, because the divorce rate is so high and the, the out-of-wedlock birth rate is so high, the fathers are also not there. So guess who ends up being in the home? It ends up being mom's boyfriend, dad's girlfriend. Um, and that tends to be a revolving door of people who are coming and going who don't always care about the children who are in that home. And it attracts people who might have a predatory mindset. And so we've seen child abuse rates go through the roof as we've seen out of wedlock births and divorce rates on the rise. So I think telling women that, you know, you need to take care of the corporate interests and not your own family is a, is a terrible thing to do. And I do think it causes us women a lot of cognitive and emotional dissonance. I know it did for me. It was very hard for me to go to a job every day <clears throat> and pretend that, you know, it's like when I was at my job, I felt like I was failing my family. And when I was at home, I felt guilty because my work always wanted more and more and more from me. Like, can you come in more often? Can you handle this situation? Can you call so-and-so and get somebody to come in because somebody missed a shift or things like that? And it puts us in this position where it's like, 
we're trying to serve multiple masters, which no one can do. And then you feel like you're letting someone down no matter what you do. It's just, um, yeah, I just wanted to really push back against some of this stuff because I think it's bad for all of us, but I think it's especially bad for women. I want to um, hone in on the the witchcraft aspect of this a bit because I think it's something that I, I, it seems like it's something that a lot of women, especially in, in recent years, um, have gotten more involved with, oftentimes not even necessarily being conscious that that's what they're involved in. Sometimes it's as simple as a crystal or a necklace with certain symbols on it that are just fashionable or what have you, or tattoos that are fashionable right. in some way. But but the more you see it, and I'm sure you discovered this, the more you look into it, the more you see it, the more you start to see it everywhere. The more you can't notice that almost every like strong, independent woman is wearing or has some kind of tattoo or earring or something that with some kind of a cult symbol. So once your eyes are open to it, it's it's absolutely everywhere. So maybe you can get more into, I mean, I know the origins go, well, it depends on, on your perspective. Cause what what they'll really say is, Oh, this is an, an ancient religion. This goes back to our roots or what have you. But, um, you know, the, the, as you detail in the book, the, the modern origins of witchcraft are, are not quite so, um, so ancient in, in some ways. Right. So like the rebellious spirit of feminism is ancient and it does go all the way back to like the earliest civilizations we can trace. And I kind of go over that in the beginning, but the modern version, (laughs) it's, I'm going to try to be really fair and not make fun of all of the TikTok witches out there. Okay. I'm going to try to be very charitable. (laughs) That's one area I at least can say I haven't, I haven't (sighs) been exposed to yet. Yeah. If people don't know, go on, (laughs) go on TikTok and just search any of the hashtags like witchcraft, goddess worship, um, white witch, green witch, anything like that. And you will find some of the most bizarre and sometimes hilarious videos of women doing insane things like watering their house plants with their menstrual cycle stuff. Hmm. Um, and, you know, teaching you how to uh, use crystals to uh, gratify yourself so that your so that your spells and your manifestations are more powerful. Um, and it's it's pushed as like this cute aesthetic too, right? It's like <laughs> suddenly you see like Kabbalah trees everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you see, uh, like you said, a lot of occult symbolism, things that you and I or other people might know, like, oh, yeah, that's an all seeing eye or that's, a, you know, you're, those are a bunch of runes and you don't know what they really mean. But these younger girls, they all they know is they go to the mall and it's like on all the clothes and it's in all the jewelry and whatever at the mall. And and it's cute. And I love the witchy aesthetic. And right. a lot of girls really think of it more as like, no, I just really love plants and animals. Like I love nature and I like rocks and crystals and I love incense. And, you know, it's just like, a, like I see girls like, oh, I'm, I'm sensing myself to protect myself from bad energy. You know, like this kind of stuff is really popular. It's become very new age. It's very mixed in with new age. And it really comes more out of like the Gardnerian Wicca, which is not very old. I do do a little bit of a talk on Gerald Gardner in the book because he was basically, and this is another really common thing. You find some pervy person who wants to do pervy stuff. (laughs) It's not accepted in like proper Christian culture, right? So we form a religion around it. And then we use the religious freedom basis to say, well, you can't tell me I can't have a nudist colony or, or, or abortions or, you know, my whatever satanic rituals I'm doing, uh, because freedom of religion. So, um, 
Gardner was just kind of this pervy old nudist and he kept getting in trouble for trying to have like nudist parties in in the in England at the time and so he said well I'm going to start a religion and he made Wicca which is kind of it really doesn't have a tradition right it's like these people think they're going back to some ancient pagan tradition but Gardnerian Wicca is very modern it doesn't really have any strong roots to the past at all it really just comes out of kind of new agey uh, self-worship kind of stuff, right? Like I, I do what I want and I project my will. A lot of this stuff comes out of Crowley too. So like the modern witchcraft stuff is very deeply rooted in all of Aleister Crowley and theosophy. And I go over a lot of that too, because that's what the suffragettes were really into was like theosophy. Um, most of them followed some type of theosophy or theosophical tradition. So that for people who don't know is like, yet another kind of scammy reincarnation of like, oh, we're going to take Eastern mysticism and we're going to mix it with some kind of Western esoteric tradition that we're going to invent. And we're going to mix it with um, a lot of like projecting our will and, and um, ritual magic and things like that. And we're going to take a little bit of what we like from all the world religions and smush it all together. And then, it's like a DIY cult thing. So a lot of Crowley's okay. followers went off and pick your own, and pick a few symbols from here, pick some goddesses and goddesses here and, you know, a ceremony yeah, or two and you exactly got your religion. What it is. That's great. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And that's why a lot of them, like Crowley was a notorious scam artist. He was an intelligence, uh, you know, he was in intelligence for at least probably two different intelligence agencies, maybe more. That's the crazy thing with- about all this stuff. Like when you start looking into it, you, you know, whether you start with the political or the spiritual, at some point you realize it is, it's all, it doesn't just overlap. I mean, it's, it's entirely intertwined. Yes. It's totally intertwined. You're exactly right. And um, the founder of Theosophy, uh, Helena Blavatsky, same thing, likely intelligence asset, very scammy, uh, lots of, <sighs> lots of shady stuff going on with her, even with the the people she was involved with and lots of like infighting over who's going to be the most powerful cult because there was money and influence and things like that involved. So these are not like, uh, people like to point to, you know, the Roman Catholic church, for example, and say, oh, it's corrupt. And it's like, these things are no less corrupt at all. In fact, you could argue that they're more corrupt. But I think that that the draw for women now these younger women to witchcraft and goddess worship, you see it all the time in music, in movies. So like Beyonce, right? Who's more popular than Beyonce in the last 25 years for, for women as an influence? She's the ultimate boss, babe. She's the maybe, ultimate Maybe Taylor Swift woman. can compete, but applies. It applies yeah, there yes. as well. So Yeah, so it's like, uh, and all the Hollywood actresses, all the Hollywood actresses are extremely feminist, very strong woman stuff. And um, again, Beyonce, very into some occulty Crowleyan type of uh, belief systems and things like that. She's not super, super out there about it, but she'll, she'll flash the symbolism and things like that. Her Super Bowl performance was absolutely chock full of occult symbolism. What are some of the um, occult symbols for people that aren't psychos like, like me that have been like watching videos about this stuff for 20 years? Um, what are some of the, the common symbols that people might spot in pop culture that they might not have thought of before that now maybe after listening to this, they might see, oh, oh, that's what that is. Oh, that's why I say that everywhere. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the all seeing eye is probably the most obvious one. You'll see them covering one eye all the time or putting a triangle or this around the eye. That's usually a reference. Um, a lot of times you'll see a triangle either this way or this way. I mean, that's Jay-Z um, too. Jay-Z is always doing that. Yeah, always sign. doing that. Um, even Andrew Tate, I noticed, who like a lot of people on the right are falling for him. And I'm like, beware, because there's a lot of red flags with that guy too. Um, but you'll just, you'll see that sort of stuff a lot. Another one that is really common among the feminist goddess worship crowd that most people don't catch is the tongue, the sticking out of the tongue. Um, Miley Cyrus, you see her do that all the time. Cardi B all the time, Beyonce all the time. And I didn't even know like earlier before I started researching for my book, why they always did that. I just thought they were kind of trying to be gross <laughs> or shocking, you know, like trying to be like, it's some kind of like sexual thing. And it is, but it actually comes from the ancient Hindu goddess Kali who always had her tongue out. And, um, in the book, I think you were kind of referencing, I have a picture of the very first cover of Ms. Magazine, yeah, which yeah. featured Kali, which is really weird. Like in you're thinking, not so okay, subtle way either. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it, I mean, it was right in your face, but this was the very first issue of the first feminist magazine in America that came out in like the early 70s. And it was marketed to housewives. Now think about your typical suburban American housewife in the early 70s. Why would you put a Hindu goddess on the cover? That seems weird. She's got like six arms and she's blue. And it's like, that's weird until you know why, right? So I explained the reason why is because Kali is, she is a favorite of feminists because she embodies the wrathful, like vengeful female goddess archetype. She wears um, severed, heads of men and severed men's arms around her as a necklace and a belt. She has um, aborted infants for earrings. <laughs> she's She is bloodthirsty. Like she's a goddess of war and sexuality, which is another theme you find all the time in goddess worship. The feminist stuff is, it's always sex and death, always interconnected together, these goddesses, um, which is really what feminism is about. Like if you look at feminism and what it's done, I mean, abortion, uh, low birth rates, and now we have, we really have a culture of death. I mean, you look at Canada legalizing assisted suicide and even encouraging it now for people who have depression or chronic illnesses. So, so much of it we take for granted too. I mean, just like Growing up, um, it wouldn't, I wouldn't think twice to me if a, if a high school, like someone my age was going on birth control because they say, oh, just take birth control yeah. for you have acne. Oh, just start taking birth control. Just take these yeah. hormones that completely fuck up your whole system and take these for the rest of your right. life. Oh, it's one of that is one of the worst public health scams of all time was just passing out hormonal birth control to young women like it's candy. And they don't tell you really that there's any side effects. They don't tell you that there might be some long-term implications, really. I mean, it's like, uh, you probably shouldn't smoke. You might get a blood clot. But here, just take the birth control. And for me, even, it was just like you could just go down to, uh, you know, the local county health department and just get like a whole little baggie of birth control. They would just check you in and be like, here's your free birth control. Um, and that's not the case. We're seeing a lot of a lot of consequences of that, um, psychological ones, physical ones, societal ones from, from birth control. But the reason Kali was so popular with early feminists was because she's this vengeful spirit. And she actually, if you look in the Guinness book of world records, 
one of the most murderous cults in all of human history that we know of was in India. And it was a cult that was devoted to her. We actually get the modern word thug from this cult. They were called thuggies. And they would attack travelers and kill them and and rob them. And they would sacrifice them to Kali. And they would only kill men because she didn't like it if you killed women. She liked men as a sacrifice. Um, And it's one of the most murderous cults in all of human history that was devoted to her. And they put her on the cover of the first... (laughs) Feminist Women's Magazine, which, by the way, was started by Gloria Steinem, along with the help of several CIA agents who funded and promoted Ms. Magazine and Gloria. They they kind of recruited her out of college and made her the face of feminism because she was kind of she was kind of a hot chick for the time. You know, at that time, she was appealing. She was attractive And she was like a really good spokesperson. And so they created this magazine based off of her and the CIA helped fund it. And and this was their symbolism, right? Is this bloodthirsty goddess who can't get enough male sacrifice. Um, So it's, you look at that stuff and probably people don't think of it or why, like, why would they pick that? And who, who funds these things? And why am I reading this? And why, you know, why do these things come about? there's always like a really fascinating story behind it. It's not just some organic thing that just happened naturally on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think for a lot of people that, that start to dive into the, this stuff, they, they start to think, well, like how can this all really be a grand conspiracy? How can, how can my desire to, to have more options in life, my desire to not be, to, you know, to go out and get a job if I want, how can that be a grand conspiracy? But the more you dive into it, you kind of realize, yes, there are conspiratorial elements along the way, certainly with uh, in- the involvement of intelligence, you can spot everywhere you go. But when you understand the spiritual aspect of it, you realize they don't need to have meeting meetings in a smoke filled room. Like we will a little later on um, when they're, right. at, when they have the same, same spiritual intent, then you don't need the meetings it just, it just plays itself out in naturally in different ways. So maybe you can touch on that more on the occult, the, the sort of spiritual aspect behind yeah. the cult. What, what, where is this all coming at ultimately coming from ultimately, I should say. Right. So there, that is a really good point. So if you're, if a lot of people who are like newish to conspiracy stuff, they'll be like, you know, they'll say that they'll say, well, think of all the people who would have to be in on right. it. And do you think that they're, what are, they're all just getting together and having a meeting and, like, and saying, you're in on it. Look what you're saying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it it doesn't have to be that way. It's much simpler than that because it's the same spirit that's behind this. That's how you can have this this same uh, like projected path over over centuries because it's the same spirits behind it. It's the same belief systems behind it, which is why I start the book with ancient goddess worship cults and what those were like and how they continued throughout history and evolved and became popular in different places. And I really focused the book <clears throat> on the West because, I mean, I didn't want to try to cover the entire planet, right? you got to limit the scope at some point. So I kind of focused just UK and US, the Western, you know, feminism stuff. I'm working on my second book right now, which talks about how they did the same thing in like the Soviet regions um, throughout the last century as well, but used a totally different uh, strategy of how they spread it. But again, it is the same uh, underlying belief. It's this underlying belief that says, um, you know, submission to your husband 
is slavery. Um, and, and even me as a modern woman right now, and I know most of the women probably listening to this, when they hear the word submit, they immediately think enslavement, abuse, exploitation. Sure. It feels like a dirty right? word, you know? Yeah. And especially we as Americans, we have an Americanist uh, ethos that we come from that says liberty is the highest value. We don't usually ask, well, like, liberty to do what? Or liberty for what purpose? It's just like freedom. Freedom and liberty are the highest yeah. thing. And that's actually a very common, like occult esoteric theme is like, um, I'm my own master. I'm my own God. Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody can come in and tell me what my morals should be. My morals are what I, what's right and wrong for me. And this is something that I heard my mother say when I was a teenager, she said, well, cause I was asking her if something, you know, that somebody had done, I'm like, isn't that wrong though? And she was like, well, it depends because what's wrong for me today might be right for me tomorrow. And what's wrong for you might be right for me. And I was like, that sounds like moral relativism. And she was like, yeah, it is. It is. Um, so it comes from this idea that like you're, you're God really. Like when you really get down to it, it's um, that's what real Luciferianism is. Any of the, real any of the rules that were sort of impressed upon you or that society is impressing upon you, those come from a false God or a God that we don't respect or what have you. Um, right. So you're your own God. Here you go. Off to the races. Yes. And like orthodoxy is opposite of that because we would say that like the ultimate moral good is self-sacrifice to give of yourself for the good of someone else and that that is actually what's best for you, right? That's how we, we believe in like an ascetic path where it's based on uh, denying yourself, denying your passions, um, controlling your passions so they don't control you, um, which is how you avoid, uh, you know, demonic influence and things like that. Whereas the occult is almost the exact opposite where it's like you embrace all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And you could look at cults like the Frankists who thought that the way that you get to heaven is actually just embrace the worst things you can think of. Do every taboo, awful thing that you can think of so that you can be free from it and rise above it that way. So they're like, they're dualistic kind of like opposite view in a way, I guess you could say. Um, but the, the, the reason that the feminist spirit is so angry and rebellious, you know, like we all have this archetype angry. <laughs> it's because if you constantly tell young women, hey, the entire world is out to subjugate you. The entire world is structured just to oppress you, to exploit your feminine sexuality. And now we tell them the only way to get that back is to start an OnlyFans mm -hmm. or twerk in the street or have like as many sex partners as yeah. possible That's and not don't shamed. catch any feet. Five kids shamed. OnlyFans, no, not at all. Go right. right ahead. No, You're like that that is where we are right now. It's a total inversion because yeah, they look at somebody like me and I'm I have a whole folder in my phone of all the nasty grams and <laughs> mean comments I get just really to remind myself of like what this what this does to you and how it ends up perverting and inverting our natural uh, gifts because they'll say yeah I'm I'm oppressed I'm enslaved but the girl who is selling pictures of her butthole for four dollars a month she is uh, you know free and she is in charge and she is not being exploited and I'm like 
Are you sure? Well, I'm not sure if you're doing it yourself doesn't make it not your own exploitation of yourself. You know, that, that seems to be of the thing. Course. As long as you're the one deciding to do it, you have the power, then it's not exploitation. But um, yeah, that, that falls apart quickly. Yeah, when you I, it. I think that comes from, again, this like very, it, it's, I would associate it politically with like an ANCAP libertarian philosophy, mm-hmm. which by the way, I had a really long and cap libertarian phase. Oh, so same here. I've been Don't there. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. Um, but we might, you might know, as like, well documented we were... in an audio format. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we we would say like, uh, yeah, it's all this um, freedom and liberty for the sake of freedom and liberty kind of thing. So everything boils down to like, what is morality? Okay, morality is consent. Right. Yep. Right. That as long as there's consent, it's moral. Well, there's a lot of problems with that, right? Because, well, what makes an 18-year-old girl consent to selling pictures of her most intimate self on the internet that's going to be out there forever? Which, by the way, I've done a ton of debates against OnlyFans and and all the problems with it, how women are not making money. Like, the average girl makes $126 a month. Wow. From an OnlyFans, you there. can't even yeah. make a car payment with an OnlyFans. And um, people have had their locations tracked. Mm. They've had stalkers. It's it's sold as this like safer form of prostitution where you have you know there's no pimps and you're not because on the street. Because this well known brand does it, so it's got to be fine. Exactly. So it's got to be safe, right? And like you said, well, it's your choice. It's you're you're empowering yourself because you're choosing this. But are they choosing mm. it? I would argue they're not choosing it just like, again, as a random came from nowhere choice that they just like rationally came to. No, we they grow up watching Instagram models, Kardashians, uh, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, Cardi B, women who sell sexuality as empowerment, who say, uh, I mean, there's like stuff in rap music now where it's like, in order to be a cool chick, you have to be into BDSM. You have to want to be getting choked or hit, right? You have to be into getting trains run. I mean, like, it's sorry to be gross, everybody. But then, then on the flip side like, of it, young men, like I was at one point, are bombarded with this imagery. So then it creates a cycle where they're the empowered ones. It's almost like it's flipped. It's like men become enslaved in some ways because they get so, yeah. you know, their brain gets, gets so scrambled by all this sexual imagery that they can't even be rational. And then, then they bring out their credit card. And next thing you know, they're, they're tossing money to OnlyFans because. Uh, yeah. And know? so so now we have simp culture and a giant incel problem, mm-hmm. right? So it destroys the men. Uh, I mean, if you look at the porn addiction problem for men, it's astronomical. It's like catastrophic what it does to men. Women, women are involved in that too. There are women who have porn addictions, but it tends to be more like convincing women that if you want to be in control and you don't want to be vulnerable, because we convince them that men are these dangerous predators who are going to exploit you. They are going to do bad things to you. And the only way you can avoid that and be safe is if you become, you know, a a boss bitch with an OnlyFans, and then you're the one that's in control and you have the power. And it's such a Luciferian uh, inversion of what um, so another great thing about orthodoxy that I did not get from Protestantism was the Theotokos having Mary as the archetype of femininity, where she was a, a virgin her whole life. She was the Ark of the New Covenant. She was defined by modesty, by um, 
giving of herself. Um, but even in the gospels, Christ like deferred to her when they were at the wedding and, and she said to give the people wine because they didn't have any wine. And Christ even deferred to her and, and went ahead and did that. And I didn't have that example growing up. I didn't have, I didn't know there was a what, what could be queen more, of What could Hedden. be more feminist, not to interject, but just like, what could be more feminist, not in the modern sense than, than a uh, God deferring to a woman? Like, is there anything more empowering right. than that? Right. And, and her being the, the greatest of all saints, she is like the, we consider her the greatest of all the saints. She is the queen of heaven. Like she's this incredibly important figure for women. And I don't think it's by accident that she was just swept completely out of Protestant Christianity because the Protestant Reformation came out of this revolutionary period as well. And it was a big, uh, it was like a revolutionary, I get to decide, I'm my own Pope, I'm going to read the Bible and decide what it means to me. And you can't tell me what it means, you know, not to bash on you guys, Protestants out there, I love you to pieces. I was one for 40 years. So I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean. <laughs> I sound like Jay Dyer. I'm not trying to be mean. Um, but I think that that's not coincidental that when we removed her from a, a large section of Western society, especially here in the United States, there was no feminine archetype to look to anymore. So it became the goddess. It became the boss bitch. It became the strong, independent woman who's sexually liberated and um, shouts her abortion. I don't think that's a coincidence. It left this huge vacuum of like, well, who, who do we look to as women? What is our like, uh, ultimate person we look up to? And now we've Megan got, Stallion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now it's like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super promiscuous. I run a business. Um, it, like, um, you, I know you just had Patrick from church of the eternal logos mm -hmm. on your show. And he and I just did a stream as well where we he very uh, rightly pointed out that a lot of feminists now act like gay men. They act like homosexual men with this very transient urban lifestyle, mimosas, vacations, Instagram, uh, swiping on Tinder, you know, and no attachments and just build up that bank account. I, you I know? saw this one video on, on Twitter the other day. It's, you know, I, I don't have TikTok and we'll never go on it, but sometimes those TikTok videos make their way to Twitter and I get sucked in, but it's, it's one of this, it's like New York 30 something, whatever that was bragging about how she went on three dates with three finance guys in one night. And I was oh, just like, gosh. wow, this really sums it up. This sums up the whole state. And what is this one person and yeah. summing it all up for me? Yeah. And I mean, when I think of like a Luciferian or a satanic force that might want to destroy people, like that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good way to get people to self-destruct. And that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, I, we were just looking at stats of how uh, in the next seven years, by 2030, 45% of single women of childbearing age will be single and childless. That's never happened in history. We've never had half of childbearing women single and childless in all of human history. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what that what the implications of that could be. It could be astronomical. And then at the same time, uh, the men, the the rates, of, you know, the incel the men are just increasing um, astronomically. Oh, yeah. So it's like, and either way, 
I, I, I'm no doctor here, but either way, that sounds like a prescription for misery on, on both sides, which can't be good. Can't be good for society over around. So I'm glad there are at least people like you that see things in another way and that are talking about these issues. Because I think for a lot of us, you know, we just take this stuff for granted. I think I took a lot of this stuff for granted yes. growing up. Yeah, of course, women should. I'm not I'm not even saying women shouldn't vote, but there's more behind it right. is the point of things. And um, right. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly the point. I often get acute like people will be like, you're just trying to get women back into the kitchen. And I'm like, no. It's not even, it's, it's really not about that when it comes down to it. It's really not about that. Um, like I just had a, a really enlightening conversation with a more baby boomer generation lady recently where she was kind of asking me about my book and asking me about my thoughts on these things. And she looked right at me and she said, I was raised and taught that men are not going to show up for me. I can't trust men. They, men are going to hurt me. So what do I do? And I said, well, didn't you just tell me you're divorced? And she said, yeah, I'm divorced because men won't show up for me and men won't, men can't be trusted. And I said, if you were raised to believe that and you firmly believe that, why would you ever consider getting married in the first place? And she sat there for a second and looked and then she, she didn't really have an answer and she kind of was like, well, but it but it turned out to be the case. I'm like, do you think it could be the case because you were programmed with this like self-fulfilling prophecy? Mm-hmm. So like what if you truly believed that you wouldn't have gotten married, but you did get married for some reason. And then when it, it's like the it's course, the propaganda and the brainwashing versus the natural instinct to mate and, you know, form a house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so and this happens all the time where women hear this stuff repeated over and over like that, how terrible men are and they just want to sleep with you and they ain't shit and they ain't, you know, they're terrible. This horrible uh, propaganda against men. And then we tell them, go, but go be promiscuous so yeah. you can be the boss and be in charge. Go please um, a bunch of men. And then. So then they do that and then they go, Oh gee, you're right. Men are terrible. And it's like, well, yeah. well, yeah. So um, like before, prior to the sexual revolution, when we did have some element of shame around promiscuity for both sexes, by the way, but when there was an element of shame around promiscuity and and chastity was a virtue that people uh, treasured, we kind of had like this um, contract with each other as women where it was like, okay, we can't start giving it up before we get married because if we do, it erases like any uh, motivation for men to, to, Mary and and because men want their posterity to be reasonably assured, right? They want to know that if they have babies with you and they support you, that those kids are theirs, right? They are doing this partially to preserve their own posterity and to pass along their genes. It's what all of us are trying to do. But if you're you're with every different guy all the time, then that assurance is gone. And then the it's kind of basic economics where it's like, well, female sexuality isn't very, um, it's not in very high demand anymore because it's the market is flooded. You can just sleep with whoever now. It's so easy to get that it's like now nobody values it. So now women and motherhood is not valued and it's not venerated. And it's like you're almost seen as a loser who just couldn't hack it in the career world if you're raising a family and having children. So it's, we took, the thing to take away, I'd say, is that we took this the order of society that the whole world had in every culture around the world, uh, 
and you could say there's some tribe somewhere that doesn't have monogamy or something, but those are, those are really outliers. That's not the way it's been for most of history everywhere. We took the natural order that we had had for thousands of years of human history, and we completely inverted it in less than a century. That's the biggest revolution that this world has ever seen. And feminism doesn't get the credit for that. Now, if you, if you're a witch and you think feminism is awesome, and I do have this like small following of witches who think that my work is great because it gives witchcraft credit for feminism. They're like, yeah, we did do that. Yes, and they agree to with destroy, me. destroy society and the family. Thank you for the, thank you for, thank you for, they do. They, um, in fact, that's why, that's why the second book is coming because that was the idea among the Bolsheviks um, in the East. And Russia was the first country to legalize abortion, to do away with uh, church-based marriage and make it simply a legal contract. And they did that with the stated goal, like this is in their writings, um, that we have to get rid of the nuclear family and we have to get rid of marriage because that is how private property is passed down. And that is how the bourgeoisie, you know, own property and real estate and pass down a legacy. And that has to go away so that we can have nothing but the state, right? Every, all your efforts should go to the state. So we have to get rid of the family. Like they, they did not try to mince words about that. They were very straightforward. We're getting rid of marriage. We're getting rid of the family. We're going to have communal raising of children. And it was an absolute disaster. So that book's going to be really fun. I can't wait for it to come out uh, later this year. All right. But yeah, I mean, that, that is the per that is the goal. The goal is to get rid of the family and to get rid of uh, moms and dads and just have everything be this monistic of like, oh, yeah, we're all just one man and we're all just going to like return to the goddess like by tripping on shrooms. And so like I do mention like Terrence McKenna and a lot of the new age psychedelic stuff is also very conducive to feminism and and this return to paganism stuff. It's all all really a big rejection of Christianity because Christianity does have a patriarchal order. And I want to take back the word patriarchy. I want to take back that word because it's been so unfairly demonized. It's real patriarchy is virtuous men doing what Christ did for the church. Men have been expected to lay down their lives for their families, for their countries, for their faith. They are expected to sacrifice with their labor to provide for the next generation. I mean, men built this amazing modern world that we all get to live in, but we've taken patriarchy and and made it mean men's natural nature is to just exploit and abuse. Men are violent and they're going to exploit and they're going to abuse. And so women must be in charge so of everything. Grab your crystals, ladies. <laughs> so we're exactly. taking it back. And so... And so what happens? Well, now we have 100 years of women kind of being in charge because women women really do kind of run things now. I mean, HR departments, women. Daycares, women. Elementary school, all almost all teachers are women. Uh, gender studies in, in colleges. We got boss lady CEOs. We have single moms, tons of single moms raising the kids with no fatherly influence. And what do we have? We have trans kids. We have kids getting transition surgeries and treatments that make them infertile at a young age. And if you look at the court cases, I have yet to find one where it's the dad pushing for this. 
it's always like a single feminist mom who says her children, you know, my son is a girl. And so we have to make him a girl. It's, it's the women pushing and facilitating this whole movement as well, which ironically erases woman's identity simply by removing or in some cases just emasculating that male figure and removing that influence suddenly we have all these things cropping up probably not a coincidence yes yes because in a in an actual patriarchy where you had virtuous men in charge now there's no perfect system there's no perfect system that will eliminate exploitation and where nothing bad will ever happen that won't exist in a fallen world but under a patriarchy men did not allow this stuff I mean, if you had some person out there, at, and this happened throughout history, if some guy came out and said, I'm a lady, and uh, give me all your young boys and let me tell them stories, the men were like, uh-uh, no, that won't be happening. Get rid He's of this coming guy. Out back. But now, but, but they exploit women's motherly tendencies, and they go, I'm sad. I'll be depressed. I'll be suicidal if you don't affirm what I think and what I believe. And if you, if you don't let me do this, I'll kill myself and it'll be your fault. Right. So it's like, Oh, we have to allow these things and we have to um, be accepting and we have to be nice. Right. We have to be nice. It's almost like applying Uh, that same, you know, power of, of the will to children who don't even know what's going on. They just have emotions that flow through them or things that they see, things that they read. And then it's saying, okay, yeah, you're your own God, little, little Johnny, you can do whatever you want. You can turn exactly. yourself into anything. Of course. That's, that's exactly what it is. You're, you hit the nail on the head right there. That's exactly what we're doing is we're telling four-year-olds that they can uh, choose to swap genders when they have no conception of what any of that means, other than what they've already been like programmed with. So it's, it turns out that inverting the entire natural order uh, just hasn't gone so well. And so the last chapter of my book is like all the, the enormous amount of statistics which prove that like by pretty much every measure, I don't think that we're better off. I don't think that people are healthier, happier. I don't think they're more free. I don't think like any of the things feminism promised it was supposed to do and provide it didn't do like i asked the the boomer lady i was talking to i'm like did feminism protect you from getting hurt by men did it protect you from divorce did it protect you from exploitation because now she's she's in her 60s she's single she's alone she lives with her sister and she's like i keep dating guys and they all turn out to be terrible and i'm i'm depressed all the time and now we've got a quarter of women on antidepressants or some kind of uh, psychoactive drugs, right? Some kind of mental illness. A quarter of women in the United States are diagnosed with some kind of mental illness and on drugs for that. So feminism did not do all the things it promised. It didn't protect them. It didn't make them happier. It didn't make things better for children. It did the opposite of all that. It made women more vulnerable. It made children more vulnerable to abuse. It made everybody um, just a lot more unhappy and fractured and atomized, which is great for those who are in control, who do want to actually exploit or abuse people. Well, Rachel, we only uh, really, really scratched the surface uh, of the content of your book. Maybe we'll dig a little bit deeper in the smoke-filled room in a second. But uh, for now, I have smart listeners. I'm sure they can figure it out. But what are all the best ways people can uh, find your bur- find your book and uh, find any any other any other things you got going on? Maybe uh, you can mention a few of your debates. I can link to some, too, if people want to see you uh, debate about OnlyFans or what have you. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm going to actually be on Modern Day Debate this Thursday, the 19th, um, with my husband debating on whether or not uh, men are treated badly in society. Right, so by the time you guys so hear this, it'll be last Thursday, the 19th, but everything else is the same. So go back and okay. find it. <laughs> yep. I have several that I've done on Modern Day Debate. Um, I do a bunch of debates on The Crucible, which is actually my husband's debate platform. Um, and then... The amazing Jay Dyer has asked me to grace his program on the 25th. Oh, nice. And the following day, I will be launching my own show. Finally, I finally got my arm twisted. Oh, timing then. All right. <laughs> enough, well, you've got a yeah, podcast audience right here. Show. So why don't you, we'll, we'll wrap up by you promoting that show and how they'll, how they'll be able to find it. Yeah, it'll be, uh, it's just going to be Rachel Wilson on YouTube. Um, if you go to my Twitter at Rach for Patriarchy, um, I'll have all the links there. I've got my link tree to my book, um, books on Amazon. If you don't like Bezos and Amazon, you can always just shoot me a DM or an email. Um, and I can send you one if you prefer that. Um, but yeah, just Rachel Wilson kind of everywhere. So. All right, Rachel. Well, thank you so much. We're going to dig a little deeper, hop over to the smoke filled room, but thank you so much. And thanks for coming on my show. Thank you. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rachel Wilson. As always, the conversation continued in the smoke-filled room bonus segment, part of the extended edition of these episodes that only my primo subs, my premium subscribers get access to. You can support me in so many different ways. I have all the options at your disposal, at least at least a good number of them. Uh, Patreon, of course patreon.com slash Mark Claire show subscribe star. I'm still waiting for some subscribe stars. People say they like it. I have it up there. You're all on Patreon. What are you going to do? Uh, and then Rockfin. I have a good number of you on Rockfin as well. Um, all of those platforms, you'll get early access to every single episode, the extended versions as well, including random bonus shows, uh, including Mark's monthly musings, where I give my insider thoughts on each and every one of these episodes that I do. At the end of the day, I thank every one of you for your support. If your support is financial, if your support is just listening to the show, telling friends about the show, I am internally grateful for your time. I know I know now more than ever how precious time really is, and I'm so incredibly thankful for you taking the time out of your day to be with me here. So until next time, in case I don't see you, my friends, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. (laughs) 